Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 9th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, but aside from being Thursday, it's also the first day of school. And joining us now is a very special guest to play one question, one question only. Please identify yourself. Milo Pesca. And here is your one question. What is seven times seven? 49. Excellent. But actually, I have a few bonus questions to ask you. And what you're going to do is you're going to prove my theory. And my theory is this. Every child is Rain Man. That is my theory. Every child is Rain Man. You might not have seen the movie. But here, through questions, you will prove to the audience that every child is Rain Man. Please stop touching the mic. All right. Just let the mic go. All right. My first question is, let's do some math. You ready? Mm-hmm. What is 81 divided by 9? The answer is not. Good. What is seven times seven? 49. What is four times seven? 28. Other areas that every child is Rain Man. Give me three facts about antelopes. The Only the males have horns. The males have horns. There's a lot of different, there's like 30 different types of them. And the smallest one is Dick Dick, spelled D-I-K-D-I-K. Here are my next two questions. You ready? Mm-hmm. How much... Does a new car cost? Would you buy it or rent it? I would buy a car. How much would that cost to buy a new car? It would cost... Let's say a Chevy Impala. That's expensive. Well, tell me how much it would cost. A Chevy Impala would cost about 4,000 bucks. All right. How much would a Caesar salad at a restaurant cost? Not a very, very fancy restaurant. Not the cheapest restaurant. You order a Caesar salad. How much does that cost? Ten bucks. Ten bucks. Okay. How much does a year of college cost at a private university? I think a little over $20,000. That's not bad. And how much does a president get paid a year? As much as I just said for college. $20,000? Yes. Okay. What if he has two kids he has to send to college? What does he do? His wife, his wife is a very, is a, plays a great part in a roller skating band. Exactly. Excellent answer. Okay. What should we do about Aleppo? There's a question in the news lately. Some people are getting it wrong. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. What do you think? Tell me what you think about the situation in Aleppo. As all of you know, people are dying because of the Syrian Syrian war. So what I should think is when the war is over, which should be before Obama gets out of president, Uh they should make a deal and maybe not be allies, not allies, not stuff like that, but they shouldn't attack each other. They should just be like, not as bad as fighting. So you basically support John Kerry's efforts to get a peace accord there and a ceasefire? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. This is how every child, not everyone's getting that question right. Again, this is how every child is like Rain Man. What movie starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman about an adult male with autism won the Academy Award? What does autism mean? It's a a spectrum disorder whereby people have a hard time connecting with others. 
Do you know the name of that movie? Did we watch it later? No. No, what? Okay, it's called Rain Man. But I have the fo- a follow-up question. What movie is this line from? Would you say there are a plethora of piñatas? Three Amigos. Milo Pasca, first day of school, fourth grade. Thank you. What do you say? Thank you, everyone. Very good. On the show today, I spiel about a man who has a little more trouble putting sentences together than our current guest, Mr. Trump. It's very hard when you're doing it from the deck of an aircraft carrier. But first, Drew McGarry is a writer for Deadspin. He covers sports. He also covers politics and culture for GQ magazine. And he's out with a new book that plums the depths of his psyche when he gets lost on a hike. So let me give you the title of some of Drew McGarry's works. He wrote Someone Could Get Hurt, which was a memoir. He wrote The Postmortal on Deadspin. He is uh, the author of recurring features like Fun Bag, The Jamboree. He's authored many Why Your Team Sucks columns. You get, are you getting a sense of the tone? Are you getting a sense of the stakes? And yet his new novel is called The Hike. The Hike, a novel. So this might sound pleasant low stakes. Oh no. There are Rottweiler-faced men chasing the protagonist of this model through a hellscape. There's a friendly crab. There's extracting a Spaniard's gold tooth with a pair of pliers. It's horrific. Drew McGarry, you've done it again. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah. (laughs) So basically, this is what? You go, you stay in hotels, you take walks when you do that, and your mind just goes crazy and you decided to write a book, a novelization of how crazy your mind goes when you take hikes? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of an allegory of business travel and how lonely it gets. But the the beginning of it is based on, it was based on a real hike I took. I had to go uh, to East Strasburg University where they, they had selected uh, Postmortal as their freshman year reading. And so I was supposed to go lecture the youth of America. And they and I got sent, it was like a Tuesday, and I was at the small inn in the woods, like deep in the woods, in the Poconos. I was the only guest. Uh, and it was like, I had a real sort of overlook vibe to it. You know, there was no elevator and, you know, you have to drag your own, you know, drag your own suitcase up through like a rotted hallway and, and it was sort of musty and stuff. And I, you know, I said to the clerk, I said, hey, is there a place where I can walk, you know, outside the outside the hotel? And she was like, no, no, not really. <laughs> and I was like, what? Not a service was, we offer. <laughs> it was the Poconos. It's it's 70 miles from New York. Like, you're, it's not, it, you're not in Montana. You're, right. not, you're not in some designated national wilderness, right? So I go out and I walk behind the hotel and I don't get five yards before I find this path, like well marked wide. And I'm walking along this path, and I was like, "Well, yeah, yeah, this lady is just has no idea what the what the hell's going on in her backyard, or I or God has put this path here for me and is going to torture me with a variety of obstacles to test my will." Right? I, maybe the path I, maybe the path didn't exist. She was right. It just started yeah. to exist in your own mind. Yeah. Yeah, and I got deeper and deeper. There's nobody on the path, or no runners, no bikers, no hikers, just me alone. And, you know, it's just that you, your mind starts psyching itself out. You know, I just I just have those moments where it's like, well, it's a, a flying monkey going to come and pick me up and then take me away to some castle somewhere. Like, I, I just that's just where my mind tends to go when I'm alone and have nothing better to do with myself. So why would you make the crab the friend? Because crabs should be scary and yet they show up as friends like Sebastian in The Little Mermaid and in your book. 
Yeah, it's weird. They're giant bugs, right? Yeah, I yeah. Should be, I should be terrified of crabs, and yet crabs and lobsters, I'm like, oh, yeah, delicious. They're fun, you know? It was the proper match of, of temperament and animal. You know, he's going to be profane. He's going to be a little grumpy. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be somewhat dickish. And it's better, <laughs> it's better if that's embodied in a crab than in, like, a deer, you know? Yes. This happens a lot in your writing. You connect to humans. They seem relatable. And yet when they get into a situation other than one-on-one or whatever way you've established rapport, they constantly horrify you. <laughs> the, the way that I work for GQ is, you know, because I've been sent to do Kid Rock's Cruise and Duck Dynasty and, and Motley Cruz Final Tour and stuff like that. And it's all stuff that I actually, I like. And the goal whenever we go is... The last thing you want is to be the uptight Northeast reporter going and and holding your nose up at these people and sneering at them. There's no point, you know? I think it's really important when you go out of your comfort zone that you have some measure of empathy and you try to, you know, put yourself in those people's shoes and see where, you know, see where they're coming from. And that happened even with Duck Dynasty, you know? Obviously, they said a lot of appalling stuff that we ended up putting in the article and it kicked up a big fuss. But they were people that in some ways I liked and even admired because, you know, I don't I don't build duck blinds by hand. You know, I'm a wuss. So yeah. very rarely is it's is someone so utterly repellent in every fashion that you just walk away being like a F him forever. And that's not productive. I mean, I remember I was on the Kid Rock Cruise and I was yeah, you know, I was doing the like the bikini contests and the belly flops and stuff like that. And Ju- they said judging that- one, participating the other. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I I participated in both. I okay, participated very in good. both. And I remember, you know, someone said, "Oh, the last newspaper reporter that was here, he just sat on a pool lounge for the whole week." And I was like, "Well, that's fucking stupid. You're not going to understand what it's all about unless you're in it, you know." Now, the Duck Dynasty story, that was the one if people forgot, uh Phil Robertson, the uh that the head of the dynasty was suspended from the show for a while because he made a lot of anti-gay comments, which you accurately reported and correctly put into your story. And yes. possibly the reaction was also just, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about it that this is how we defined this guy or this was the only thing that mattered about him to too many people? Or it's fine that society sends the message to someone saying anti-gay things like that. Yeah, I think that that's part of the free market. I think when people get uh, fired or suspended for saying things that piss people off. They cry First Amendment. And it's it, that's not the same. You're allowed to f- say what you feel, but people are also free to react, particularly, you know, if you're, if you're employed by somebody and something like that. And the family stood by their comments and have essentially fashioned political careers out of those comments. They don't regret them. You know, they disputed a year after the fact how I reported the story but not immediately afterwards because they, they essentially embraced what they had said and they still do to this day. So no, I don't, I don't have any regrets over how that went. There is this cottage industry of um, sort of taking umbrage at the umbrage and well, Donald Trump has ridden the notion of uh, anti-political correctness pretty far. Now what you do in your deadspin columns, you run up against, I mean, politically, political correctness is a really ambiguous term and it can be wielded to mean anything, but you run up against some version of that. Some people saying, don't say that, or you're being offensive or, you know, police yourself. Uh, so there's a little bit of an overlap there. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, sure. And I, I am cognizant of if I say something that genuinely pisses someone off, I do reflect and think about, should I phrase it differently? Are they, are they overreacting? You know, am I fair to, 
to say that they're overreacting, given the the lofty position I I get as a dick joke maker over at Deadspin. Yes, you know, and I've changed a good amount since like 2006. Because you know, back in 2006, it was the fucking wild west. Like you know, like it was the internet. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it, it was it was far less polite back then. Well, is there one general thing you don't say anymore, or a phrase you don't use, or a, a, a specific area where you're like, wow, I was really wrong about that? Oh, I think I think back in 2006, like a lot of the sports sites would put boobs up all over the place to get page views. There were gay jokes aplenty. Those are gone. And rightfully so. Um, I want to go through in fun bag style and just ask you a couple of random questions. OK, please do. All right. If superheroes existed, would pro sports also exist? Yes. But you would have to segregate it. So you would have to have normal person sports and then you would have to have superhero sports. Okay, but a couple of things. How do you know, hey, look, I'm the world's fastest man. No, it turns out you're just an extremely lame version of the Flash. Oh, uh, well, they would have to, you'd have to test them. You'd test them and then brand them and then it would turn into a dystopian uh, X-Men thing where mutants are jailed and there's, there's World War Six and stuff like that. Um, in terms of wearing a jersey with an athlete's name, I have a rule that I could never wear anyone younger than me. Do you have such a rule? Do you understand where I'm coming from? Do you think there should be exceptions? No, no, you can wear if you're really into like Todd Gurley and he just joined your team and you're excited. You can buy a Gurley jersey. That's fine. I don't, mm. I don't have a problem with that. There's no fooling yourself. You know, no one's, no one's looking at you and be like, "Wow, he must be Todd Gurley." Like they know. No, I know, but they wouldn't think I'm Joe Klecko either. It's just to me, worshiping a professional athlete, looking up to a professional athlete, is something a child should do to a man, not that a man should do to a younger man. It's not necessarily that you look up to him, though. It's that you're a fan and you admire and you appreciate him. It doesn't mean you necessarily want to be your dad, you know? <laughs> Do you think it's okay that we basically countenance uh, professional football players doing some level of doping just because they're warriors and we don't want to know what the hell goes on? You know, I think one of the reasons baseball gets more flack about it is because of the record book and everything in it is sacrosanct. Whereas uh, NFL records are... are fairly fungible and people don't give them as much weight, particularly because the style of play has, has rendered a lot of them obsolete anyway. Yeah. And I, I don't want anything killing the buzz of the action I'm watching on the field. I don't, I don't care. So you've studied the Robertsons and Kid Rock and, uh, well, I don't know if Motley Crue fits into this next question, but you write a lot about football. I think you understand the state of the American male. Yep. When you read all these articles about how there's a ticking clock on the longevity of football as our national sport, do you do what I do and roll your eyes a little bit? Yeah, I do, because uh, I don't think the dangers of football are exactly newly discovered. You know, I mean, I remember William Knack writing about, you know, guys like Johnny Unitas who were essentially, you know, walking train wrecks by the time they were age 50 and 60 and getting shit pensions and just in just in eternal agonizing pain. And, you know, I think particularly as with the NFL, I think oddly enough, everything that we know now about the sport gives people more permission to watch it because because now you can say to yourself, well, they're grown men making the decision to do it, right? Yeah. So... You know, I'm not going to stop watching football. If the only reason I would stop watching football is because, um, you know, the rules have been have been changed around so much that that it's it's become impossible to officiate, and gameplay has been very sloppy. And in that sense, the the game is doing real damage to itself. But in terms of the moral implications, you know, 
it's tough. You'll, you'll watch a movie and a stuntman will die doing a stunt on the thing. You're still going to watch the movie. I think there's a parallel between the idea that football might go away and the idea that the Trump phenomenon caught so many smart media people by surprise in that <laughs> it's not understanding what's making the American male tick. I think a lot of it is wishful thinking, you know, where it's, okay, Trump has no chance because I don't want him to have a chance. The NFL is going to go away because I don't, I don't want it to keep going. Right, right. The novel's name is The Hike. Drew McGarry is the author. He writes for Deadspin, so I guess he'll soon be writing in Spanish as uh, they're a part of the Gawker Media Empire that's been sold to Univision. That's not true. Yes. It's still going to be in English, right? How do you say Jamboree in Espanol? It would be the same. Oh, it would be and it would be, I honestly, I think it would be cool if they, if we had uh, Spanish Deadspin and Morto Girar, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it would be Deadspin in Spanish. I'm not sure. Drew McGarry, thanks so much for talking to me. Anytime, thanks, man. And now the spiel. When it comes to the generals, Donald Trump lacks specifics. In a candidate forum last night, he said the generals have been reduced to rubble, calling things a disaster. Our military is a disaster. Or saying things have been reduced to rubble is his way of saying we have underperformed. So let's not focus on that particular phrase. In fact, let's focus on one of his Q&As, an extended Q's and A's, I guess you would call it. And I think it's perhaps useful to do this because I have been considering this notion. Sometimes when charges don't stick to a politician, we call that politician Teflon. Trump ain't Teflon. Trump is a mudder, which is a horse who runs in the mud. Any one piece of mud, think of a specific piece of mud on the track. What are the chances that at the end of the race, that's the piece of mud that's going to be on the horse? It's hard for one piece of mud to stick to a mudder because the next piece of mud knocks that piece off. I think he's a mudder. I think there's an accumulation, but any one piece has a hard time of sticking. But maybe... It would hurt Trump's electoral chances more if the media, and hey, I'm in the media, if the media were to just pick one of these outrages or inconsistencies or lies or avowals of clear ignorance and just try to nail them with it or let it be the noose that hangs him or the toaster that's thrown in his bathtub or the rock that bludgeons him or the scissors that stab him or the paper to drape over his carcass. But since rock beats scissors and paper beats rock and so on, these various implements tend to cancel each other out. I believe that the accrual of disqualifying remarks will ultimately prove disqualifying. But I do wonder if we focused on just one, what would happen? With that in mind, let's ponder one statement. The statement is not a lie. It's not one of his egregious insults. It's not veering away from a prudent policy of the past, like when he threatened the very existence of the NATO alliance. It's not endorsing a destructive policy of the future as when he endorses the 45% tariff. This is just a typical example of the contentless palaver that strongly indicates that Donald Trump does not know what he's talking about. Let us set the scene. MSNBC last night, candidate for military issues. Questioner Matt Lauer, who could be described as an intrepid newsman only by dint of last night's setting. He starts by asking. You said this, quote, we're going to convene my top generals and they will have 30 days to submit a plan for soundly and quickly defeating ISIS. 
So is the plan you've been hiding this whole time asking someone else for their plan? No. But when I do come up with a plan that I like and that perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't, I may love what the generals come back with. Your plan was to use someone else's idea? Answer, no. 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 Trump says no, indicating, no, that's not my plan. I have my own plan. But then in his next sentence, or whatever this group of words can be called, he contradicts himself. No. But when I do come up with a plan that I like and that perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't. Hold on, hold on. When I do come up with a plan, so that's conditional. So he doesn't have a plan. But then he says, or perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't. That makes no sense. Or maybe it does make sense. Insofar as Trump is constantly offering plans that don't agree with his plans. Look at his plan about tax rates, his plan about a deportation force, his plan and policy and stance on the minimum wage. It just contradicts himself. It's unclear. Then a quasi clears it up. Then a spokesman says the plan hasn't changed. The words have changed. And then he ultimately says whatever the crowd cheers the most about. But let us rejoin this answer on the Intrepid. I may love what the generals come back with. I will continue. But you have your own plan. I have a plan, but I want to be, I don't want to, look. Look, here's what's going on in the mind of someone who says this. Sometimes he has a great point he wants to make, but often he's just saying it to clear himself a little space. He doesn't know what he wants to say. He knows things aren't going well. So he says, look, or he says, listen. This is a way of saying, reset, hold on, time out. Because Trump is thinking, I know I have no plan. He's also thinking, I know I can't say that. He's also saying, but I can't say that I do have a plan because then he'll ask me about the plan. So I got to say something else. I got it. I got it. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do one of those things that's big at the rallies. I'm going to say this. Look, I have a very substantial chance of winning. Make America great again. We're going to make America great again. I have a substantial chance of winning. That's a sentence. That's a slogan. That's the same slogan expressed as a full sentence by inclusion of the words we're going to, and then that is the first sentence repeated. Now, he has created a little room in his brain to put forth the argument that he wants to make about the existence or lack of existence of a plan. I don't want to broadcast to the enemy exactly what my plan is. And let me tell you, if I like maybe a combination of my plan and the general's plan or the general's plan, if I like their plan, Matt... I'm not going to call you up and say, Matt, we have a great plan. If I like maybe a combination of my plan and the general's plan or the general's plan, if I like their plan. What? What? Maybe he's trying to remember that palindrome, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Maybe the longer version, a man, a plan, a cat, a ham, a yak, a yam, a hat, a canal, Panama. Madam, a madam, generals, plan. Next question, Matt. Nailed this one. But Matt does not go on to the next question. He bores in. But you're going to convene a panel of of generals, and you've already said you know more about ISIS than those generals. Well, they'd probably be different generals, to be honest with you. Glad he's being honest. He's also being inaccurate. I do not think Trump knows how generals work. Certainly, he will get them to work better. I mean, there's no question about that. But the four-star generals and admirals leading the services, they were all recently turned over. Their terms generally, or admirably, are four years. It's specifically designed to have continuity between presidencies. Now, 
I do not know, having heard all that, whatever that was, I do not know how even the most staunchly pro-military person could hear those words and not be very concerned with the honesty, the intellect, the awareness, the competence of the person making those statements. And what he's saying there is no worse than what he says whenever he is pressed for specifics. Maybe we should pick and parse and poke at this one statement for weeks to come. Maybe if everyone gave serious thoughts to those thoughts, then Clinton wouldn't be almost tied with Trump in the polls. Maybe. Though, ultimately, what I think will happen is that we'll have three debates, and those debates will expose Trump as ignorant and a poor communicator of his terrible ideas. And I happen to know how Hillary will beat him in the debates. She has, you see, a plan. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Chris Berube, who knows that three times seven is... 21. Also, Mary Wilson, who knows that four times six is... 24. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. He's always walking around the office going, what's nine times five? What's nine times five? And what I need to tell him is it's... 45. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He got that job by getting one thing right. Nine times nine. 81. The gist, we have been likened to a small African antelope, otherwise known as a... Dick Dick. Spelled... D-I-K-D-I-K. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. How is that beatboxing that just me? Just directed by Mike Pesca. No, not directed by Mike Pesca. Created by Mike Pesca. That's good credits, but keep going.